Roshtuni Radio presents The Cure of Souls Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Roshtuni Narrated by Nathan F. Conkey Produced with permission by the Chalcedon Foundation 44. Covenants and Confession A theology of confession must begin with the fact of the triune God and his covenant with man. It must be God-centred. It cannot begin with confession itself, or it will then be man-centred. The Puritans tended to emphasise confession very strongly. Puritan pastors in their record books referred to the many confessions made by people distressed by their, quote, apparent, end quote, lack of sufficient faith, grace, mercy or obedience. As against the formal worship of the Church of England and the publicly recited general confession of the Book of Common Prayer, they sought a more personal confession in relationship with the Almighty. They took very intensely and earnestly Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11.28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, End quote. The result was a strong belief in self-examination. This led to a heightened self-consciousness. Both the Roman Catholic confessional and the Puritan stress on self-examination did contribute to the modern introspective mind. Modern man is prone to analysing himself and others in terms of Freud. Freud himself represented another strand in this heightened self-consciousness that of Judaism. Now, in our Lord's time, the Pharisees had developed self-examination into a vast system whereby what constituted good and evil was prescribed by much analysis and man-centred thinking. The number of steps a person could walk on the Sabbath was carefully prescribed, as were all his activities. Not the plain law of God but the law of the Pharisees prevailed, and the apostles described it as a yoke. For some Protestant evangelicals, the antidote to sin is endless involvement in, quote, spiritual, end quote, activities, that is, a church-centred rather than God-centred life. Sin is related to church activities and personal failures in, quote, spiritual, end quote, exercises rather than to God's law, despite the very plain statement of 1 John 3, 4 that, quote, sin is the transgression of the law, end quote. In Roman Catholic circles, faithfulness to God's law is often replaced by an attitude which sees activities outside the church as defiling. Thus, we are told that Patricia Kennedy Lawford, sister of President John F. Kennedy, quote, would cross herself before each and every sexual encounter, end quote, with her husband. This, if true, is sad. It indicates a desire for holiness and a misdirected one. After all, scripture is clear on the subject. Quote, Marriage is honourable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge, end quote, Hebrews 13.4. To reduce the faith to, quote, spiritual, end quote, concerns is an implicit Manichaeanism. The Phariseeism of old 
and of our time in Judaism was rooted in a legalistic precisionism. God's covenant is a covenant of law and grace. It requires that the focus of our lives be covenant faithfulness, not a humanistic concept of spiritual perfection. The ground of our peace with God is not of ourselves nor in us, but in Jesus Christ and his atoning work. Those who torment themselves with their sins are not trusting in him nor in his salvation. At the other extreme, we have those who take no account of sin. In analysing the thinking of Albrecht Ritchell, B.B. Warfield wrote, quote, Holding firmly to this irreducible either-or, that there can be no love of God present where his wrath is in any measure active, Ritchell could not allow that the reconciled sinner could justly suffer under a continuous sense of guilt. No clouds could be admitted to obscure the Father's countenance. The reconciled believer must not only bask in an unbroken but in an unsullied sense of the divine love. The Reformation doctrine that the Christian life is a continuous repentance, that the believer is conscious of continual shortcomings which, he knows, deserve the wrath of God and is continually receiving unmerited forgiveness, was not merely repugnant but impossible to him. He was compelled to develop a conception of the Christian life which inferred perfection. There could be no room in it. We do not say merely for distrust, fear, despondency, but for contrition, repentance, self-abasement. The very essence of the Christian life is, for him, necessarily freedom from these things. Precisely what, quote, reconciliation, end quote, is to him, is the discovery that God takes no account of sin in us, not that we are freed from sin, but that it makes no difference whether we sin or no, God closes his eyes to our sin. This is, of course, an antinomian attitude. All perfectionist doctrines run into antinomianism. It is intrinsic in Ritchell's low view of sin. What is, at the moment, important for us to note is that it enables us to understand that Ritchell is not willing to have the perfection which he proclaims for Christians measured by the standard of the moral law. Whatever the Christian may actually do, he is no, quote, sinner, end quote, and his conscience must not accuse him, end quote. Ritzel's influence on modernism was a deep and important one. Among other things, it led modernists and their evangelical camp followers to abandon confession for psychotherapy. They now saw their problems not as sin, but as mental burdens brought on by family and church. Psychotherapists who direct a memorial to Ritchell, he has contributed profoundly to their success. Warfield's thinking in perfectionism is very important in this context. Both sin and grace must be taken very seriously by covenantalism. Too much confession is based on individualism and perfectionism. As we have seen, Warfield calls attention to the fact that, quote, all perfectionist doctrines run into antinomianism, end quote. They do so 
because they abandon the covenant for individual salvation, or if modernists for social salvation, for a political utopia. In both cases, God's covenant and the covenant law are replaced by a perspective which fractures scripture to separate love and grace from law. For covenantalism, God's sovereign grace redeems us and God's sovereign law guides us. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Psalm 119, 105. We, therefore, are not left in doubt, nor do we need to exercise ourselves emotionally to know our status before God. It does not depend upon us, but upon Him, and He is always faithful. Again, citing Warfield, quote, It belongs to the very essence of the type of Christianity propagated by the Reformation that the believer should feel himself continuously unworthy of the grace by which he lives. At the centre of this type of Christianity lies the contrast of sin and grace, and about this centre everything everything else revolves. This is in large part the meaning of the emphasis put in this type of Christianity on justification by faith. It is its conviction that there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only, quote, when we believe, end quote, it is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. End quote. Perfectionism rests on Arminianism and it leads commonly to a belief in the plenary power of man to save himself. In the Arminian system, man accepts God or he rejects him. Man makes the decision, a key word to Arminians. Because man does all this, man's state of mind becomes very highly self-conscious. If everything depends on man's decision for Christ, then everything depends on emotional confessions, witnessing and enthusiasm. Hence, the Arminian needs continual revivals because he needs a freshening of his enthusiasm and a renewal of his ostensible salvation. All this, over the centuries, has given a very false emphasis to confession and to the whole of the Christian life. It becomes a continual self-exercise in, quote, spiritual, end quote, helps. If God's relationship to us is determined by our decisions and our confessions, then an impossible burden is placed on us as individuals. And then our minds are reduced to continual turmoil. For some people, this leads to serious mental problems as they try to dredge up every conceivable sinful thought or act in order to confess them and cleanse their soul. Instead of spiritual assurance, they have instead spiritual uncertainty, or else they lapse into a weary indifferentism. They have become the centre of the world. Everything is read in terms of their lives. It is true that all events come from the hand of God. His providence rules and overrules all things, so that all things are not only from him, but also have as their goal the purposes of the Almighty. 
We are not the center of God's universe. He is. Our confessional life cannot be centered on ourselves. Here again, Warfield is devastatingly accurate in his analysis. Quote, Because God is in all that occurs, each thing that exists may be taken in turn as a centre from which we may look out upon the all-embracing providence of God and in relation to which we may contemplate all that occurs. It is not in itself wrong, therefore, that each individual soul should look upon all that occurs to it and to all that circle of existence which closely surrounds it as part of God's providential dealing with himself and should utilise it from that point of sight. Nevertheless, some very curious, some very undesirable results are apt to grow out of this entirely right and useful habit. When it is one-sidedly indulged, it may, often does, end in erecting our individual self into something very like the focus of the universe and conceiving of everything and everybody in the circumference of the circle thrown out from ourselves as a centre, as existing for us alone. A death of someone in our circle, for example, comes to be viewed only in its relation to our own person and is thought of as it were brought about by the divine governor of the world solely for its effect upon us. We read, for instance, in Upham's, quote, The Life of Madame Guyon, end quote, of the deaths of her father and daughter, and from all that appears from the expressions of feeling quoted from Madame Guyon or from Upham's comments, they seem to have been looked upon by her and to be recommended to our consideration by him, so prevailingly from the point of view of her own disciplining, as to suggest that they were brought about by God for no other purpose than to benefit her. End quote. The whole course of human affairs revolves around such people, if they are to be believed. Both confession and prayer can become exercises in egocentricity, unless the praise of God becomes paramount in our lives, in our confessions, and in our prayers. The failure to ground confession in sound theology and covenantalism warps the whole of Christian faith and life into something man-centred pietistic and ineffectual. Warfield wrote of Madame Guyon, quote, Everything, therefore, which was transacted in the person of Christ here on earth and found its completion in him, she transferred to the heart of the individual and had transacted over again there. It is only in this sense that she enthrones Christ in the centre of her religious life it is not the fact of the redemptive work of Christ on which she rests, and it is not the forming of Christ within as a result of faith in this redemptive work for which she hopes. She suspended her hope on the repetition in the soul by its own exercises of the experiences of Christ until, having reproduced in itself the qualities that characterize Christ, it becomes sharer in the divine favour which rested on him. Christ ceases in this view to be our saviour and becomes our model. He is not himself the way by which we reach God, 
but only the guide who shows us the way. Not the blood of Christ, but imitatio Christi has become the ground of our hope. End quote. In such thinking, faith is Pelagianized. A confession of sins is worthless unless there is the praise of God and a confession of faith. A valid confession has consequences. As James 1, 26 and 27 makes clear, quote, If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. End quote. Such a man is in God's covenant. Well done for listening all the way to the end. This is Nathan, the narrator, speaking to you from Puebla, Mexico, from the Faith for All of Life school, in which I teach English as a volunteer. I teach from kinder through high school. Now, I rely on donations in order to keep teaching and recording, so if you want to support a Faith for All of Life school in Latin America and want to keep listening to Rush Dooney while you vacuum, drive or cook, commute or whatever you're doing right now, donate at cten.org forward slash Nathan Conkey. That's N-A-T-H-A-N-C-O-N-K-E-Y, all lowercase. Or if you prefer PayPal, paypal.me forward slash capital N Nathan capital C Conkey. You can also email me at nfconkey, that's nfconkey at gmail.com. Thanks, and I look forward to speaking to you very soon.